Welcome listeners to part two of our Black Explorers of History episodes. In this episode, J.R. Harris, who is a contemporary explorer, an educator, and storyteller, will continue educating us with stories of two new explorers. The first one is James Beckworth, who was one of only a handful of early mountain men to emerge from the system of slavery. And the second explorer is Matthew Alexander Henson. He was an American explorer who was on seven voyages to the Arctic over a period of nearly 23 years. He is best known for his discovery of the North Pole. The Appalachian Mountain Club invites adventurers, explorers, and outdoor leaders to share their astonishing stories. Stories that unite communities with inspiration, information, and entertainment. Elevating unheard and diverse stories because everyone is part of the outdoor community. This is the Unlikely Stories Podcast. J.R. Harris, welcome back to Unlikely Stories Podcast. Yeah, thanks. Uh, Nice to be back and nice to uh, continue talking about uh, Black explorers who uh, made history who a lot of people may not know that much about. So I'm happy to um, bring a little uh, knowledge, a little profile on on these next two gentlemen as well. Um, I want to start with a a guy named Jim Beckworth. Now, Jim Beckworth, um, unlike... uh, uh, Esteban de Durantes and York, Jim Beckworth um, was actually born into slavery, but he got his uh, freedom. He was able to get his freedom. He was born in 1805. So 1805 is the year after the Lewis and Clark expedition started that York was on. So he was kind of the next uh, um, black explorer of note, if you will, after York. So he's born in in, uh, 1805, again in Virginia. And uh, when he he got his freedom, he decided to move west. Now, it's it's very likely that he would have known about the Lewis and Clark uh, expedition. And this was at a time during the mid-1800s when the big push, all of the um, settlers started to move out west. Uh, 1848, there was a big uh, uh, gold uh, discovery in California. And so, um, you know, when they say go west, young man, you know, they, he was one of those young men uh, who went west. He, he was trained as a, um, uh, a blacksmith, but he, he went out west. He was uh, like 19 years old and he worked for a uh, fur trapping company at first. Um, the Rocky Mountain Fur Company, and they hired him also as a, an Indian fighter to protect their interests uh, out west. So now uh, in, in 1828, uh, Beckworth was actually captured by the Crow Indians while he was out doing some trapping. And, uh, you know, according to Beckworth, um, they thought he was the lost son of a Crow chief. And for that reason, they, uh, they spared his life and they brought him into the, uh, the, the Crow tribe to live. Um, supposedly he married uh, several Crow women. 
and had a uh, uh, and had a family with them, and he actually rose to the level of a chief in the Crow Nation. Um, now I should say here that that Beckworth uh, also had a reputation for telling tall tales. All right, so um, we know that the basics that he did, you know, that he went out west. Um, he wasn't an Indian fighter. He was employed by a trapping company. He was captured by the crew. The, the basics are true. And he is actually uh, the, the first African-American uh, explorer who actually had a book written about him. So uh, after a few years living with the Crow Indians, he, uh, he leaves and he goes back uh, to, to civilization. He then becomes a, uh, an explorer and, and his, his big claim to fame is that he, in 1850, discovered a route across the Sierra Nevada mountains that the, um, the uh, people coming in from, to find gold, the, the searchers of gold rushing out to the West Coast uh, could get across the Sierra uh, Mountains. And it's called Beckworth Pass. It's a low elevation pass uh, through the Sierras uh, on a route that, that was called the Beckworth Trail. So then, you know, nine years later in 1859, he moves to Denver, Colorado, and he became a storekeeper. <clears throat> and he also worked as an Indian agent, worked for the Indian agency. And he, he was hired again as a scout for the uh, for a military campaign against the uh, against the Cheyenne and the Arapaho Indians in the uh, uh, in the late 1850s, early 1860s. <clears throat> and he was he, he was stationed at Fort Laramie um, and Fort Phil Kearney. Um, in the end, he uh, uh, he goes back to the Crow um, Indian Nation to to live out his uh, final life. Nobody, you know, once he got there, nobody really knows kind of what happened. They, uh, uh, they say that he, he was still a chief there. Some say that he was uh, poisoned by one of the wives that he left earlier. Uh, nobody, nobody really knows. Mm -hmm. But because he was a player. <laughs> uh, the thing that's different really about <laughs> uh, in, in 1848, he runs into a wandering journalist named Thomas Bonner. And this guy Bonner was writing about tales about the, uh, the explorers going west. Uh, and he was fascinated by Jim Beckworth. And so Jim Beckworth sat down and told him the story of his life. And the book was published. Uh, and it's called, what a title. It's called the Life and Adventures of James P. Beckworth, Mountaineer, Scout, Pioneer, and Chief of the Crow Nation of Indians. And ladies, man. <laughs> <laughs> player! Alleged player! Yeah. So, uh, but he becomes now the first um, African explorer to actually have um, a book about his travels and actually have somebody uh, recording his stories um, for publication, which was actually quite uh, popular when it first uh, was published back then. Mm. Um, although, you know, in, everybody back then in, in the mid-1850s or mid-1800s, uh, stories about 
what was happening out in the West and Westward expansion, everybody was lapping those stories up. Uh, and so his was, uh, was one of them. And, and an extraordinary person, obviously. Remember, you know, these, these guys, they never had any education. You know, they, uh, they just had to learn as they went and, and deal with life in whatever situation or, or part of the country they, they found themselves in. And so people like, uh, like Beckworth, as well as York and Durantes that we talked about in a previous episode, um, they, they had to kind of make it happen as they went uh, and learn as you go. And they were able to, uh, despite everything that society had against them, they were able to, uh, uh, to succeed and have an exciting life. And even back then, it sounds like, like today, everyone's moving to Denver. Mm. You know, back yeah. forth, even back then in the 1800s, like, people go to Denver for a little bit. Today, everyone's like, people go to Denver, Colorado. Do you know the year the book came out? Well, and is it came out? Yes. And, and is it still available? Uh, I don't know if it's still available. Okay. It came out in 1856. 56. Oof. I would love to read that. <laughs> If you find a copy, let me know. What I thought about was if it came out in 1856 and a lot of people were reading it, it probably was primarily slave owners reading it or white people, right? Unless I'm incorrect, but that a lot of slaves were not afforded the the basic human right of being mm-hmm. taught to read. So they, So if you were a slave, were you even able to read about this story or probably not? I doubt very seriously if any slave read this book, mm-hmm. uh, simply because most of them could not read or write. Right. You know, yeah. they, were, they were hired to be workers. Some of them lived in the house as, as house servants, and some of them actually uh, were educated. You know? um, and it's quite possible that, yeah, maybe a few of them did get a copy of this book and, and read about it or at least heard about it. But yeah, the, the vast majority of people who were enslaved back, uh, back during those days um, probably uh, never had access to the book or never read it. Yeah, and I'm, I'm surprised it was published at all. Right. You know, and if it was for, because they're telling a story of this black man that's not a slave and he's living this amazing life. I don't think they're going to want to hear that, you know? So, yeah. and I, so I don't know how long it would, it would stay out, you know, like how long was it out on the bookshelves if they had bookshelves back then? <laughs> on the flip side, I, you know, maybe people were curious. I mean, the guy had an extremely exciting life. Mm-hmm. I mean, he was a mountain man, you know, and, and he was doing it just like Kit Carson and all the other uh, mountain men back in the days, you know, and yeah, he, you know, Jim, uh, Jim Beckworth was, was black man. Uh, but, you know, in the, in the excitement about opening up the West and all the things that were happening out there, um, I can imagine that some people would be uh, curious about it. Okay. You know, of course, uh, it would be the Tom Bonner, the author who got all of the proceeds from it. Right. Um, but yeah, it was a the guy had an interesting life. Got a fascinating yeah, life. Yeah, he did. Yeah, he did. We'll be right back with today's episode. This episode is supported by Lakey, makers of the world's best poles since 1948. Whether you're out hiking on your neighborhood trails or undertaking a thru-hike of the AT, 
Lakey has the perfect pole to fit your needs. I certainly rock with Lakey poles. They help me take the load off my joints and definitely prevent me from falling and headbutting a tree. They also help me conserve energy so I can make it to my destination feeling fabulous. To learn more about the benefits of hiking with poles and to find a retailer near you, visit Lakey.com. That's L-E-K-I dot com. Let's get back to the show. Matthew Hempson. <laughs> this one I'm really excited about. And I feel like this is getting a little more in the, um, the time zone that I can, the time period that I can somewhat wrap my head around. 19, 1980s? <laughs> <laughs> oh, it's before 1980s. Matthew Alexander Henson was born on the 8th of August, 1866. So now this is right about the time when Jim Beckworth died you know, in the late 1860s and so forth. So it's kind of a progression here from York to uh, Beckworth and now uh, Matthew Henson. Matt Henson was born in uh, Charles County, Maryland. Um, His his, uh, parents were were freeborn, but they were sharecroppers. And... uh, uh, Henson lost his mother when he was when he was very young, and his uh, his father, um, when he was uh, four years old, moved to Washington D.C. Uh, in search of, of better opportunities rather than being a, a sharecropper. Um, but unfortunately, a few years later, his father died, and uh, he left um, Henson and his siblings in the care. Of, uh, of other family members. So um, Henson was orphaned, orphaned at an early age, uh, raised uh, in DC by family members for a, for a short period of time. But then when, when Henson was 11 years old, uh, he left home. Uh, he worked briefly uh, in a restaurant and he walked all the way to Baltimore where he, he found work as a cabin boy on a ship. Um, the ship was called the Katie Hines and the skipper's name was Captain Childs. And this guy, Captain Childs, uh, really took a liking to Henson and took him under his wing and taught Henson everything he needed to know about being a sailor. How to use the astrolabe, how to, uh, how to navigate. And and actually, Henson sailed as a, as a cabin boy on a Katie Hines all around the world as a, as a kid. And so he really had uh, a great upbringing under, um, under Captain Childs, uh, who really treated him uh, very, very well. Um, unfortunately, in 1884, Captain Childs died. And uh, so, you know, Henson at that stage was, was you know, out of luck. So he, he went back, Henson went back to Washington, D.C., and he became a clerk in a hat shop. And it was during this job that he had uh, um, in this hat shop where his exploration history really began, although you can't really discount the years he spent sailing around the world, because it was in this shop that he met um, Peary. Um, Robert Peary, Robert Edward Peary, 
uh, came in, was impressed by, uh, by Henson, and hired him to be his manservant. And now that Piri was about to embark on an expedition to Nicaragua. And so he, uh, uh, he, he had um, Henson accompany him, uh, which for Henson was, was a big break, it was better than working in a, in a uh, shop. Um, so they went to uh, Nicaragua and they, when they came back, um, Henson found work in Philadelphia. But then in 1891, uh, he got married and then he was still um, connected with uh, Peary and Peary had him go to, uh, took him to Greenland, hired him to go with him uh, to Greenland uh, for an expedition. And they were, uh, yeah, they learned all about the Inuit culture, the Eskimo culture um, and, uh, and their language and, and and uh, Henson actually became quite um, proficient as a dog musher, as a hunter. He knew the Inuit language. They went to Greenland again in 1893 uh, in order to, to, to chart the, the entire ice pack. That was, their, uh, that was their goal. But that expedition, unfortunately, didn't, uh, didn't work out that well. Uh, some of the people died of starvation so that were on this uh, uh, that were on this expedition. And, um, but yet, uh, Peary and, and Henson went back to Greenland again in uh, 1896 and 1897. And uh, that trip was to recover a meteorite that they had found on a previous trip to, uh, to Greenland. And so they, they found this meteorite, they brought it back um, and they were sold. They sold it to the Museum of Natural History, and that enabled them to uh, to finance additional explorations to the far north. Enable Peary to finance uh, expeditions to the far north. So um, for the next several years, they they went back and forth uh, to the far north, and the the dream, of course, in the late 1890s and early 1900s was to be the first person to get to the North Pole. That was kind of the last uh, big um, goal, exploration goal, during what they call the age of exploration in the uh, early 20th century. And, and Peary, of course, was determined to be that guy. They, they tried and tried again. In uh, 1808, they went back up and uh, at this time, they were, they were in a ship that was specially built for the Arctic that could sail farther north than ships previously could sail, which meant that when they finally got stopped by the ice, it would be a shorter trip from there to the North Pole. Uh, so rather than walking the extra hundreds of miles to get there, this particular ship was able to um, inch its way through the ice and get them to the far north. And then uh, finally, they made what they called a dash to the pole, Peary and Henson and a small group of uh, Eskimo men. They made that last dash. And in, in uh, 1909, they claimed to be the first, uh, or Peary claimed to be the first person to get to the, uh, to the North Pole. There was some controversy when they returned 
uh, because there was another guy named Frederick Cook who claimed that he was the first guy. But in the end, um, uh, it was Peary who was given the credit for being the first one to, uh, to get there. And then uh, since then, there's been some controversy as to whether Peary and Henson even got there. Uh, a few years ago, National Geographic did a story where they took all the charts and the measurements and everything that, that uh, Peary had and tried to, to uh, reconstruct the, the journey. And uh, they kind of concluded that they probably made it, if that's really a conclusion. Um, there was also another controversy about who was actually the first person to get to the North Pole. Now, on that final trip, um, Peary had uh, frostbitten toes and he couldn't walk. So he was in the sled and they sent uh, Henson out ahead because Henson, now understand, could use these instruments to, uh, to measure uh, where they were. It was, it was Henson who was out front and probably uh, was the first person to actually step at the, the farthest north uh, there is. And then uh, Peary and the rest of them came uh, a little later with uh, in the sleds. So uh, of course, um, Peary was gonna get the credit for it as the expedition leader. Uh, when the expedition was over and they came back, Peary got all of the uh, credit, he became famous. He actually became president of the Explorers Club. Henson was a, was a true explorer like his predecessors, York and Beckworth and, and Durantes. And uh, when, he, when he died, he was buried in the Bronx, you know, oh, not yeah. too far from here. Um, but, uh, he was, he was later, uh, disinterred, he and his wife, and they were reburied in Arlington National Cemetery, which is where they are right now. So the story has a, uh, a good ending, you know, at least, uh, there. And so, and now he is considered the co-discoverer of the North Pole along with Peary. So, um, you know, it took a while, but, uh, you know, he's, he's finally getting the credit that, uh, that he deserves. And so, you know, these are examples of, of, of guys who, who laid it all out there, uh, who, who did it for many, many years and, and, you know, never really got the recognition that they, that they deserve. Did Matthew, Hen was he still alive when he became a member of the Explorer Club? Do you yes, know he that? was. So he, yeah. so he was alive for, he was alive to see that he got some credit. You know, he had to wait until Peary died. Uh, but what happened was that there were, there were explorers back then who, you know, I think these guys knew what it took to be an Arctic explorer. And they knew that Henson had the skills. They knew, you know, and so when they, you know, when, when push came to shove and they really had to, to face it, you know, they, they eventually, they did the right thing. You know, they said, yeah, the guy, he made it. He did it. You know, he was up there all those years, not just that one trip to the North Pole. He was up there like 10, 15 years on different expeditions. And uh, there are a lot of other people who were also explorers in the far north who are members of the club. And mm -hmm. so they knew what it was like. Mm -hmm. you know? And so, yeah, it took a while. Uh, but in the end, you know, they, uh, they made him an, an honorary member. Uh, and he was still alive to to see it. That's great. Now, was it was Henson always like the first one? Did Perry just set him ahead and say, "Hey, look, you go ahead, and then I'll meet up with you"? Was that a thing? 
that he would do? Or was it just that one time where he was he had uh, frostbite? Yeah, well, he couldn't. Uh, Piri couldn't walk. He had to um, he had to ride. But you, ha- you really needed somebody to go out front to see if there were any problems in the ice mm-hmm. or if there were any open leads, if there was water they had to cross. Um, but if you're going to send somebody out ahead, you want them to be headed toward the North Pole. You want them to know where they're going. Mm-hmm. And with, uh, with Henson's experience, since he was a kid, in, in knowing how to use all these instruments for navigation, uh, he took the instruments and he, uh, he knew where he was going and he knew how to, to get across the ice. So basically, uh, the rest of the party simply had to follow his tracks. And, uh, uh, and, he, and he basically led them right there. And it's quite so, possible that Henson also maybe had frostbite or wasn't, was a little worn for wear, so to speak, because they had been traveling for quite a while in that area that I, I can't even fathom how freezing those temperatures must have been. So it's not like, maybe we don't know this for fact, but I doubt that Perry was the only member of the party who was injured. Isn't the point? <laughs> yeah, I, I don't recall, you know, I read the uh, biographies and the autobiography of Henson. I don't recall him. Uh, I don't recall any incident of him being um, frostbitten on that leg. Mm-hmm. Um, but of course, you know, maybe you, they just didn't mention it. You know, what was, what was interesting is that um, when, they, when they set out on that final dash to the pole, they, they had several dog teams and, and dozens of, of men along with them. And uh, as they got closer and closer, Peary would send people back so they wouldn't be using up all their supplies. And people sending back had to leave supplies so that Peary, when he came back, would have food and supplies to get all the way back. Um, but he set it up so that when the final push came, he was the only white guy mm. in the party because he wanted to be able to take all the credit for, for himself. And so that last party was just Peary, Henson, and, uh, and the, their Eskimo uh, uh, so he, he, colleagues. He would send them back or he would tell them like, I'm just going to go ahead and you stay here? Or... No, he would send them back. He, he, was, was, he would say, okay. yeah. And You've so basically they were, there to, they were there to supply the route. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. They were there to bring supplies, leave them there, and then go back, and then a little further, and go back, and go back. And so, uh, uh, so they would have enough for the return trip to get back to where the ship was. Mm. And did you say that these um, these other people, other members of the party who were helping with supplies, that they were recognized later on, or do we still not know who their their names were either? No, we know who they are. Mm-hmm. Uh, we know who they are. They were, you know, some of them were really famous uh, explorers. As a matter of fact, okay. the guy who was the uh, uh, the captain of the vessel that, that took them up there uh, was was also famous. His name was Bartlett, and and the ship itself was famous. You know, it was that that uh, was financed by Theodore Roosevelt, if I'm not mistaken, mm. uh, who was also a member of the Explorers Club, Teddy Roosevelt. Um, so yeah, there was it was a um, well documented, well supplied, uh, well manned expedition all the way up there. Um, everybody in it was a, was a well known explorer. It's just that they never got to the North Pole. You know, it's another interesting thing about this too, is that while 
uh, Peary and Henson were in Greenland in the previous expeditions, they each took native wives and they had children by them. And so many years later, <clears throat> um, a, a, uh, a black man named Alan Counter, who was also a member of the Explorers Club, uh, but he was a professor and he went to Greenland to see if he could find uh, any relatives of, of Henson who he had when he was staying in Greenland. Um, and he found them and he actually brought them back to the United States. Uh, by this time, Henson was, was, already, uh, was already deceased, but he, uh, he was able to bring back the relatives. He was able to visit them in Greenland and bring back one or two to, uh, to bring them to Arlington National Cemetery to visit uh, Henson's grave. Wow. That's pretty awesome. That is, and I'm, I'm also still in shock from their first line about him of when he was 11 years old, he's mm -hmm. getting on a ship and he's traveling the world and he's exploring then. And I'm thinking of what I was doing when I was 11. And I'm, I think I was just playing with Barbies and playing with my skateboard. So yeah. he, was, he was on a next level from, from the get-go. And if my calculation if my numbers are right he was 18 when perry met Hen or uh yeah so henson was 18 when perry first met him yeah, 18 uh, or 19 18 or wow. 19 so he was still you know teenager young adult doing these but, things but he's been on that ship since he was 11 mm -hmm, mm -hmm. so he was already you know, so by the time he was by the time he hit 20 years old the guy has been around the world mm -hmm. you know or most of the world yeah. in a ship Literally. And he, uh, he, he lived until um, 1955. He died on March the 9th, 1955. Mm. And so he was given, he was the only one who was really given the recognition that, uh, that the others did not get, you know, because he, um, um, because of Ronald Reagan, President Reagan was the guy who's, who made it possible for him to be buried in Arlington National Cemetery. Uh, with uh, with full honors, and of course, uh, uh, Alan Counter, who was a professor at Harvard University, also a black man, uh, was responsible for um, discovering Henson's uh, relatives who were living up there in Greenland. Yeah, I and it's great that we're talking about this because I didn't know anything about him until you gave me a tour of the Explorer Club and you started talking about Matthew Henson, and I said, "Wow." everyone needs to hear this story. So I'm so glad you were able to share it with, with everyone. Um, yes. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you so much. We do, we do have one more. Yeah, it's great. We do have one more question for you. We're going to switch gears a little bit, no pun intended because it is related to gear. So you said you've been backpacking for more than 50 years. Uh, which we, we can do an episode on just his adventures right. alone, which we may do for season two. Yeah. I mean, I'm 33 and you have been backpacking for more than my lifetime. Uh, and that's incredible. So you've seen gear evolve over time. What's your, what's your go-to gear item to this day, regardless of the times, regardless of what's trending, what do you always take with you when you hit the trails, JR? Well, of course I, you know, they have what's called 10 essentials. Right. Uh, these are 10 things that you, you know, that you must bring. So, of course, I have all those. If there was an 11th, you know, item, you know, I, I guess that would have to be my uh, 
my pint flask of very old cognac. That, <laughs> That's not gear. That will lube your gears, but <laughs> get well, you going. Now, I, I take a pint of a Remy Martin, very good cognac. And every night, as I'm in my sleeping bag, getting ready to go to sleep, I unscrew the top. I pour one little capful and I drink it. Now, depending on the day and what happened that day, either it goes down right away or I sip it and make it last as long as I can. So now here's a statistic for you. If you take a pint of cognac and you drink one capful every day, you're going to have enough for 18 days. If your trip is longer than 18 days, you're either going to run out of cognac or you're going to have to start rationing it out even more as you go through. So pint gives you 18 capfuls. Keep is that, that what's kept you coming back to backpacking for the last 50 years? Uh, <laughs> luxury 11th item. <laughs> I'll say this. I've always taken it okay. <laughs> when I haven't taken it. The 11 essential items that JR brings. Let, let me, that wasn't the last question. I have one more. If there was one gear that was taking out, you have 10, 11. What's the one gear that if you take out, you couldn't do it. You couldn't do your trip or it would be hard at least. I mean, I have a guess. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, um, you really need all 10. Uh, but let's just pick one. I, just to... I, I'm going to say a compass because I, uh, you know, I was doing this before there was even GPS. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So I was doing it before there was any device, there was any inReach or any, any of that. I'm a mapping compass guy. Without a, a map and a compass, that's one thing I couldn't do. In fact, I once did a trip to Newfoundland. And during that trip, my, I dropped the compass and broke it. Mm. and and had no backup so what that taught me was uh the importance of being able to navigate and making sure that you have a compass and you know if you buy a any kind of gps device these days and you read the instructions usually right at the top in bold letters it says don't go out there unless you bring a compass you know as a backup mm-hmm. so uh it's good advice. You know, I have a compass and know how to use it. That's a great reminder. Yeah. For and me. You, yeah. And you say compass because a lot of hikers nowadays are doing amazing things with through hikes and doing sections or day hikes or whatever. But we have markers on trees, rocks, you know, on the bridge or whatever. But you're not doing that. You're, you're doing uh, other. You, you know, when I go, there's no trail, mm-hmm. much less a mark trail. You yep. know, it's called a route. You know, you want to go from point A to point B, but how you get there is up to you. Well, question, is it a, is it called a route or is it called a route? Tomato, tomato. <laughs> like, <laughs> you always start in something. You're so you scandalous. Say route, I say route, but you've been doing it for a lot longer than me. So I'll go with your word. I'll say route. You call it a route or route. You could call it a peanut butter sandwich if you want. These are the important questions. Well, JR, this was amazing. Thank you for sharing your knowledge and educating all of us with all of this history that we all need to know. Thank you. It was Thank a you. pleasure. I learned a lot. Total Thank pleasure. Mine. Thanks a lot, guys. Very nice talking you. to you. We're not gearheads, but... Let's talk about gear. Let's do it. Derek, when you go backpacking and spend the night on trail, do you go stoveless? No. Um, 
when I threw hiked, I actually brought an alcohol stove. Oh, wow. Just straight out of the gate went for the the alcohol stove. What is that like? They're so intimidating. Are they really? I thought, you know, what's intimidating were the fuel ones. We have to bring a canister and all that. I was like, I don't know how to do that. So that's why I figure if I bring the alcohol stove, which is pretty light, all I needed was like denatured alcohol or heat or whatever and just like pour it in there and just light it up and I was I was good to go. So I thought that was simple. But you think it's like think next level. Way next level. Oh, did, really? Did you like using that? I, I did. It didn't. I mean, I, I needed to learn how to use it. And the first time I lit it, like the fire went up and I had to pull my dreads away and make sure that, you know, my dreads weren't catching fire. But it it was the only, yeah, I I liked it. It worked for me. So I I have never used one of those. I actually went stoveless on my first through hike in 2013. And I just ate a lot of Pop-Tarts. So mm, Pop-Tarts. So good. That s'mores flavor. <laughs> so good. But they're really heavy and they're not that great for you to eat every single day because of all that sugar. So... You think? Go figure, right? So I ended up switching to a stove. Mm -hmm. And I ended up getting a jet boil stove. Yeah. yeah. Which I really liked using it. It boiled the water really quickly. And then I was just adding ramen and other things to it. But it was easy to use. And you know what, though? I'm a little, in addition to alcohol stoves, I'm intimidated by lighters. Mm. So... So having to, this sounds so ridiculous, but having to go buy a lighter and use it and attach fuel. I mean, just the whole thing. It's, it's better than rubbing, trying to rub sticks to make fire, okay? A lighter. Are you are you okay with matches? No, the whole thing is just so foreign to me and really freaks me out. Even to this day, I'm a little, I'm a little hesitant around things like that, around fire, I guess. Okay. I got over it, though, obviously, because I had to, because I had to eat on the thru-hike. So I liked using the jet boil, and I heard that they have a new jet boil out. The stash. The stash. Have you tried it yet? I have it, and I've played around with it, but I really want to dig into it. Um, it's lighter. It's made for through hiking. That's what I heard. I heard it's forty percent lighter. It's a totally different size too. It's it's more squatty. You know, the other one was longer, and now this one is more horizontally shaped. Yeah, it's nice looking. It. I know, I kind of just want to use it because of the way it looks. I just want to put it on my desk so I can look at it all the time. And because of the name. Stash. Stash. (laughs) By Jet Boyle. Stash. You say it so much cooler than me. (laughs) This was great. Thanks, everybody, for listening to our stories about how we cook on trail. Let's end the show with a brief word from the Appalachian Mountain Club. Did you know that the Appalachian Mountain Club was founded by volunteers? Even more impressive, the Appalachian Mountain Club still relies on a vast network of volunteers who contribute to every part of the Appalachian Mountain Club, from trail maintenance to education to leading outdoor adventures. You're bound to run into a few volunteers while out on the trail. Justin Bailey is the Appalachian Mountain Club Volunteer Relations Manager, who works with many of these volunteers, helping them promote the protection, enjoyment, and understanding of the outdoors. Welcome, Justin. Thanks. Thanks for having me. So the number of volunteers that that work with AMC varies um, by time of year, um, and there's estimates from anywhere between 1,600 and 16,000 volunteers, depending on who you ask. Um, Those volunteers are people who deliver programming uh, for the public, so things like hiking trips and and different activities like that. And then we also have volunteers that do trail maintenance um, and then volunteer uh, in a non- uh, 
a non-continuing basis. So they'll come in for maybe a trail cleanup or something. So those volunteers also count in, in, in our volunteering numbers. And uh, we have volunteers across uh, all states in which we have uh, chapters in, so about 12 states. Uh, and then we have volunteers that also come in from other states that we don't necessarily have chapters in. So we have volunteers as far south as North Carolina and West Virginia as well. An AMC chapter uh, is a, a group of people um, in a certain region uh, of AMC. So chapters are how AMC delivers a lot of the programs, uh, a lot of the conservation work that we do. Uh, chapters are completely volunteer run and volunteer managed. So a group of people historically will get together and say, we want to create an AMC chapter in this region. We want to connect with the resource that the AMC has, uh, and we want to form a group that's going to operate here in, say, uh, West Virginia, if we were to create a chapter there. And they would get together and uh, form a committee of people who will then help recruit active trip leaders, uh, volunteers for trail crews, uh, volunteers deliver different types of programming and learning opportunities. And chapters uh, range anywhere in size from about 800 members to our largest chapters have close to 30,000 members in them. COVID had a pretty significant effect on our, on our, on our volunteer programs. Um, we had a, a pretty large paradigm shift uh, in how we deliver a lot of the programs that we do. Um, we're a very social organization. So a lot of what we do is in person, um, everything from the activities to the training, those types of things all take place in person. And when COVID hit, uh, the volunteers actually did a fantastic job of making a shift to moving a lot of the programs, a lot of the training, a lot of the workshops they do from an in-person format to online. Um, and it definitely slowed us down with the amount of in-person things that we do, but I think that we did a pretty fantastic job, um, and the credit really lies in the volunteers utilizing a lot of the technology that we have out there, things like Zoom and, um, and you know, other, other online meeting form, um, programs. They did a wonderful job moving uh, a lot of those programs to an online format, and then, you know, when we developed COVID protocols for how to conduct ourselves in in-person meetings and, and programs, uh, they did a fantastic job uh, kind of uh, taking those protocols and, and implementing them out in the field and uh, continuing to have activities in person, um, socially distant and safe. While being stuck in our houses um, did have uh, some a lot of negative effects on us. Uh, I think that it was actually helpful in learning how we can take a lot of the programs and a lot of the presentations and a lot of the the day-to-day -day things that we assumed prior to COVID had to be done in person where people have to travel sometimes for hours and long distances to meet. Uh, it really gave us an opportunity to learn about um, and, and develop tools to, to have these online meetings. Um, it changed the, the way that we knew things had to get done. And I think the, the advantage to that, the advantage to, to kind of exploring and moving into more digital formats for the, the kind of work that our volunteers do is that it, it really um, kind of broadens uh, the, the, um, the amount and, and, and who can attend uh, the, the our activities. Um, you know, we have, we're really focused on diversity, equity, inclusion and in terms of equity, being able to deliver an online, you know, backpacking training, as opposed to having, have, having to have someone drive 
four or five hours to, to take that course, being able to do it in their own home, um, that really goes a long way when it, when it comes to making the environment that, that we're trying to create with our volunteers much more equitable. One of the one of really cool creative examples of volunteers really embracing uh, delivering content digitally was the New York North Jersey chapter began um, this uh, lunch and learn series where um, every week, multiple times a week, they would invite guest speakers from around the region to come from 12 to one o'clock and they would have a live Q&A um, with someone with an expertise in a different outdoor topic. And it was wonderful because, you know, they realized that not only their volunteering is kind of taking place remotely and digitally, but there's a lot of people who are now working from home um, and who are kind of stuck inside. And an opportunity to connect with the chapter in the middle of a workday, you know, you, you, you pause at 12 and instead of sitting down in front of the TV, you can sit down in front of a, a Zoom presentation or a, a webinar and learn something about the outdoors. And maybe you can't go out right now uh, and do those things, but um, having the opportunity every day during lunch to sit down and learn something new about the outdoors was, was a fantastic thing that they, they put together. And uh, it's still highly attended and they're still doing them, even though we're back out uh, outside and having in-person activities. It was, it's been such a popular um, program that we're, that I think they're going to continue running it for as long as they can. So to get involved with volunteering uh, at the AMC, um, you can go to the, the website, outdoors.org, um, and contact uh, really any of those emails or phone numbers that are listed there, and they'll get you in touch with either one of the chapter leaders or one of the staff uh, volunteer managers that can help you kind of figure out what the role is that you're looking for in volunteering. Um, we have tons of different ways that a volunteer can get involved with the organization, everything from going out and doing trail work to, you know, if you're really good with social media, helping to, you know, build our social media presence in, in the different chapters and different volunteering groups. So there's tons of ways of getting involved. Uh, I think the first step is just contacting really anyone um, that uh, at, at, on that website, and they'll eventually steer you towards either myself or someone else in the volunteer relations team or, or chapter leader uh, who can help you get started with that process. The Unlikely Stories podcast is produced by the Appalachian Mountain Club. Production design, editing, and show segments are produced by Kelly Welch and me, Derek Lugo. With sound design by Adam Watkins. The Unlikely Stories podcast episodes are written by Derek Lugo. With writing assistance from Carly Murray. For more Unlikely Stories, follow us on Instagram at Unlikely Stories Podcast. And hey... If you are digging what you hear, take a moment to subscribe, rate, and review this podcast. This helps us bring the pod to more people.